You can turn in your Bibles, if you like, to Mark chapter 9. We're going to read a a portion of this chapter, and and we'll come back to it uh, in a moment or two in the message. This is Mark chapter 9. We're going to begin reading uh, from near the beginning of the chapter, starting at verse 2. This isn't going to be on the screen, so if you've got your Bibles, you can can, uh, turn to them or you can listen carefully. It said, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and he led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And uh, they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. We'll stop reading there in verse 13. Pray with me. Father God, would you uh, guide and speak to us this morning, and, and may we hear from you as, as we are, in fact, preparing ourselves to come to this table that Jesus hosted and hosts with us today. Uh, that is our prayer, God. Speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a series that's all about trusting God, and we've been talking about faith and the problem of faith and the difficulties that faith has with this thing of certainty in our lives, and I've been saying that certainty is a very, very difficult, if not sometimes impossible thing to come by. Last week, we looked at the subject of faith and science and uh, really kind of explored the question of can you have faith and take science seriously or vice versa. And uh, we read from Mark 9, not the verses that we read this morning, but from later in the chapter. We'll go back to that in a moment. But first, I want to make just three quick observations about faith, okay? Okay, here's the first observation. When we say the word faith, they use the English word faith, it actually refers to several different things that we find in Scripture. For example, it refers to belief and it refers to commitment, Belief is a statement about something that I I think to be true. For example, I might believe that my wife is cute. In fact, I do believe that my wife is cute. Um, And I could be very certain about that, or I could be less certain some days or at some moments, right? But I do think that to be true. A, A belief, understand, is a product of thought. It's a product of reflection, Uh, on circumstances, on events, on things I might be learning, and those things help to inform belief and enable belief. Uh, Something that is decided in the mind can become a belief that I hold dearly. Commitment, on the other hand, is different. Commitment is more about a decision of the will, obviously still happening in the mind or in the heart. You know, we use these terms kind of metaphorically, but, but commitment is all about a decision of the will. 
It's more something I do. It's something I commit myself to. I bind myself. I make a promise. I take an action usually based on and in conjunction with this thing of uh, the things that I believe to be true. Um, when I make a commitment, I choose to devote myself to a, could be a friendship, could be a job, could be a marriage, could be to God. It's a choice versus something I simply know uh, or believe. Uh, it's very important see, to recognize, too, that on this thing of a belief, uh, you can't just choose to believe something. Let, let me explain. For example, you can't just choose to believe that pigs can fly. You cannot just choose to do that. Belief needs some kind of intellectual, some type of experiential support to undergird belief. Uh, Paul, for example, didn't really, he believed in Jesus. He knew that Jesus existed. But if you know anything about the apostle Paul, he, he really didn't commit to Jesus until he had a certain experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus, where Jesus actually personally confronted uh, the, uh, Paul. His name was Saul then, and, and, uh, and later he becomes an apostle. Now, that being a bit of a backdrop, folks will sometimes disparagingly speak of faith. Uh, they will talk about choosing to believe something for which there's no good evidence. There's no good reason at all that you should believe it. Mark Twain has a kind of humorous definition of faith. He says, faith is trying to believe what you know ain't so. That's an interesting observation. It's kind of humorous. But what I'm saying is you can't believe what you know ain't so. You're not really capable, neither am I, of believing something you know ain't so. This is important about faith. You can't simply produce faith on your own. Uh, you can get better informed about something, and then perhaps it changes your beliefs. You can experience God himself, life with God. You can practice things like praying and seeing God obey, or not obey, but, but answer prayer. Uh, you can practice obeying God, um, and faith will likely grow as a result of some of these kinds of practices. But you cannot just conjure up belief simply by willpower. Uh, you can't believe what you know ain't so. Faith, the idea of believing in God involves both believing that God is there, that God is real, but it also involves this thing of commitment, this idea of following him. So there's two kind of component pieces of faith. That's the first observation. Here's the second. Sometimes I have to make a 100% commitment to something, even though I do not have 100% certainty in my beliefs about it. Uh, there are times when a decision re requires some kind of commitment, a commitment around which or about which I lack certainty. Uh, this actually happens often in our lives. Uh, you ever put any money in the stock market? Okay, you're 100% you're committed. I mean, you're going to make money or lose money, but you can't be certain which one it's going to be. Ever decide to have kids? Perfect example. You know, you ever develop a, a close friendship and you invest in that friendship? You don't, you're, nothing's guaranteed about the return on that investment. Ever get married? You see, you're making 100% commitment without certainty, and we do it all the time. If you're married, when you uh, took your vows, what did you say? You did not say, honey, I'm about 95% certain we're going to make it. So I'm going to be 95% committed to you as we go into this thing. You did not say that. What you said was, all that I am, all that I have is yours for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. I'm 100% in on this commitment that I'm making. Uh, many key decisions and commitments in life require passion, 
They require 100% commitment and are often evidenced by actions that we take. Even though we don't have 100% certainty. One more observation before we get into this text that we read. The observation number three. I can expect my sense of certainty or my certainty in my beliefs to ebb and flow, to go up and down over time. Uh, that too is actually just part of the human condition. My experience, my emotions, my circumstances, my health, my learning, uh, the, the things that I'm learning that, that changes me, all of those things affect my level of certainty at any given point in time. Let me give you an example. Many years ago, and way long, a lot of years ago when I was in college, uh, one of the things I loved to do was rock climbing and rappelling. And um, I loved to teach people this sport. Uh, we would uh, drive to a place, it was called Sunset Rock. I, went, I was on Lookout Mountain uh, in Tennessee, and there was a, a rock face called Sunset Rock. And you would drive to a parking lot, and you could park there, and the rock was off through the woods. The cliff edge was off through the woods. And so we'd park, and I'd get all the gear out, and I'd lay it out, and I would kind of describe and explain the gear. You know, here's your climbing harness. Here's its tensile strength. It's not going to break. So on and so on. Here's the rope. Here's its elasticity. Uh, here's the strength of the rope. And I would go through all this, explain all this, the rappelling rack, carabiners, things of that nature. And I had the sense that as I did that, they were believing every word I said. Uh, and then we would take all this gear and we would walk through the woods and we would get to the cliff edge. And I would tie the rope off to a, a large, sturdy tree, the same tree I always tied the rope off to. And then I would throw the rope over the edge, and I would have the person come over, and I would harness them into the rope. And uh, now it was time. It was time for them to journey out over the edge. Uh, what do you think happened to their sense of certainty? <laughs> yeah, you think it went up, or you think it went down? For some, it went way down. You know, suddenly they'd have lots of doubts. I mean, what if the harness were to break? Uh, what if the rope were to fail? What if the cliff collapses? What if a giant bird attacks me? What if the tree comes uprooted? I mean, all kinds of nonsense. Objectively, very little had changed from where we had parked the car, gotten out the equipment, and examined and talked about the equipment. The gear was the same, exactly. There was really only a little new evidence that should have maybe given them caution, and that was the cliff itself. But suddenly, because of the cliff, because of their circumstances, because there have been these changes, because now they're looking out over this going, what? You want me to do what? You see, they, they start to have some doubts. Uh, sometimes circumstances change. Something strikes our imagination, our mood, our emotions, our perceptions, and we find our thoughts running towards doubt. And it's at that point that we have a choice to make an action to take because you don't partly jump off a cliff, right? Either you're all in or you're not. This is the proverbial leap of faith you've heard about before. If you want to run along the cliff face, which is half the fun of repelling, if you want to experience the exhilaration, you have to take the leap of faith. Your mind might have all kinds of questions, doubts, or fears, but if you want to experience the fun, then you have to take the leap. You simply have to. And most of the time, that's what people did, and it was a lot of fun. Once in a while, not very often, but once in a while, somebody would say, yeah, let's pack the gear up and go back. I'm not doing this, you know. Uh, now, so about this leap of faith. This is a phrase that became popular uh, from a Danish uh, 
philosopher, theologian, believer, I believe, uh, Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, that phrase, leap of faith, is not choosing to believe an impossible thing to be true uh, or to believe an impossible thing for no good reason. It's not choosing uh, to believe, for example, that pigs can fly. It's not ignoring the evidence. It's not jettisoning reason, reasoning. It's not uh, a blind choice or a foolish or an irrational choice. The leap of faith language is actually, for Soren Kierkegaard, about commitment. Preferably making a commitment for good reasons. Reasons that I've thought about, that I've carefully considered, so that in spite of my fears or my, uns my uncertainty, I choose and I act because there's really no other way to experience the thrill of repelling. No other way to experience the joy unless I act, unless I choose, unless I commit. And here's the deal. There are certain fundamental decisions in life that require 100% commitment, passionate engagement. That's 100% commitment, passionate engagement. Kierkegaard often spoke of passionate engagement as a description of faith. There are, there are decisions that require that kind of commitment, like living by certain values. In order to stick to your values, it requires passionate engagement. Or getting married requires passionate engagement. Raising children, having deep friendships, following Jesus, all of these things require, necessitate passionate engagement. But there are no guarantees that any of these things will be easy or even always fun. Or that at times they won't break your heart or put you in places of confusion. Um, but these things can also be, I mean, they can be exhilarating. They can be satisfying. They can be the most meaningful things you do in life. They can be incredibly purposeful. Living by certain values, getting married, developing friendships following Jesus. There are decisions, often the most important ones, that require 100% commitment but do not come with 100% guarantees of certainty. So with that as a backdrop, we're going to look at Mark chapter 9. Are you with me so far? Okay. Interestingly enough, in this chapter that we read, the chapter begins on a mountain. Uh, Jesus took his friends up there one day to give them a gift, an incredibly special gift. In the scriptures, if there's a, an appearance of God, we, we call it a theophany, an appearance of God or a revelation of God. Many times it happens on a mountain, strangely enough. Many times. There's something majestic about a mountain. It gives you a, a kind of vision, a kind of perspective you get uh, that you just really don't get anywhere else. Mountains were often where people would come to discover that God is real and God is powerful. Uh, God met Abraham on, on a mountain, Mount Moriah, where he substituted a, a ram for a sacrifice for his son, Isaac. God spoke to Moses in a burning bush on Mount Horeb. Uh, God spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice on a mountain. And God just frequently meets people on mountains, and it is a glorious thing, always a glorious thing. But here's something else that's kind of interesting, namely that God never lets people stay there. He never does. He always asks them to trust him and to leave. Abraham, leave your home. Go to where I'm going to show you. Moses, deliver my people from the Pharaoh, from Egypt. Elijah, stand up to Jezebel. He takes them up on the mountain, but they do not get to stay on the mountain. You could say they have to jump. They have to jump. 
You know, the main appearance of God in the Old Testament, the one that the Jewish peoples, the nation of Israel, go back to over and over and over again is, of course, God appearing to Moses on Mount Sinai where the uh, Ten Commandments are given. It's a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. There's a striking passage in Exodus 24 that says, when Moses went up on the mountain, a cloud covered it. You know, it's an image of transcendence is what that is. It's physical, and yet there's mystery to it that surrounded Moses' meeting with God on the mountain. It reveals, yet it conceals. It says, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. Now, the language that's used here is, is actually quite deliberate. Six days of preparation, it says, and then the seventh day, that's God's day. Just go back to the creation pattern. Six days, God works. Seventh day, God inhabits the, 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 this, this place that he's made for human beings to dwell in, but God is going to dwell there too with them. The seventh day is special. God is at work. God is celebrating what he has done. God is up to something is what's going on here. A few chapters later in the book of Exodus, Exodus 34, we read that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. So he's been physically transformed because of being in the presence of God and having a conversation with God. And his face is radiant. It says, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. There's glory that's rubbed off from God to Moses. There's, there's this radiance going on. God was very, 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 very real understatement of the year to Moses, right, because of this experience. He had a mountaintop experience. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus would often, we find in the life and the patterns of Jesus' life, he would often go off alone by himself, sometimes to a mountaintop to pray to his father and to connect with his heavenly father. And so Peter, James, and John probably weren't that surprised when Jesus says, hey, you three come with me. We're, we're going up the mountain. They probably had some idea what they were going to do. Again, in Mark 9, it says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. They weren't expecting that. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. I love that comment. You know, it's whiter than you could possibly imagine bleaching them. The mountain uh, here is, of course, referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration. That's not the name of the mountain, but that's the way we refer to this, this moment in Jesus' life and ministry. The language is telling us, though, that something very, very significant is happening here. Something like when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's the same pattern. Peter, James, and John, all good young Jewish men would remember. Here's another mountain. Here's another leader of Israel becoming radiant, radiant with the presence of God. And then suddenly they see two figures to whom God had appeared before. Elijah and Moses are there. And we're told then that the cloud appeared and it enveloped them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. You remember, what, what did the disciples want to do? They wanted to build some, you know, tabernacles. They wanted to camp. They wanted to stay there. They wanted to remain on the mountain. And so you see here, here's what God did on Mount Sinai, revealing himself to Moses. He seems to be doing now on this mountaintop, and he's revealing himself through his son, Jesus. One other detail. How many days had passed when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountain? Six days. 
Same pattern, familiar pattern. So this is the seventh day, just like when God gave Moses the tablets. You know, God is present. There is something very significant happening here. This pattern is repeating itself, just like Exodus. And God is revealing himself. He's breaking into and he is disturbing the natural order of things. Uh, Peter, James, and John are being confronted with the fact that our world is not a closed system. That's, that will be on the test. Our world is not a closed system. And, and this is kind of fundamental to a Christian view of life, a Christian world and life view, that miracles do happen, that the supernatural does happen, that there is a God who just keeps showing up. And this, of course, is a very different world and life view than that of naturalism or materialism, a secular world life view. Both of those views, naturalism, materialism, believe that the world is a closed system of cause and effect, a system with no intervention of any kind from outside the system, because any life, any, any existence of anything outside the system is ruled out. You know, a miracle is not possible. God is not possible. Not because the possibility has been disproved scientifically. You can't prove or disprove the possibility of a miracle or the possibility of God. It's believed to be impossible based on, this goes back to things we've talked about already, based on their faith assumptions. That assumption is this, that all events in our universe are governed by the same laws of cause and effect and laws of space and time. Therefore, all events have to be repeatable. All events have to be observable, the scientific method. For you to know anything about something, it has to be repeatable and it has to be observable, right? It's called the principle of analogy. Are you still with me? Okay. It states that because we live in a closed system, that's the faith assumption, because we live in a closed system, every event must be somehow like other events, analogous, has to be repeatable, has to be observable. Another way of putting this is there can be no event that happens that can be unique. So stuff like virgin births, that doesn't happen, ruled out. Healings, they don't happen. Walking on water, give me a break, that does not happen. Raising the dead, no, that does not happen. Those would be unique events. There can be no radically new event in the closed system. All things, as all things have been, so they will be. Now, again, this hasn't been scientifically proved, nor can it be. It's just a basic presupposition. It's a, it's a belief or a tenet of the faith of naturalism. Now, hold on to that, okay? There's one event that is particularly problematic for materialists or naturalists. Uh, for people who believe that material reality is all there is. Because this event has no analogy. Uh, this, event, um, <laughs> this event is uh, just a bit, of a, a, a bit of a problem for people that believe that material reality is all there is. Uh, it, because it's not observable. It's not repeatable. Uh, it's an event that is not covered by the laws of even cause and effect, and that is the event of origination, or we would call it creation. The notion that there was a day when nothing became something, uh, that the universe, in other words, came into being. A naturalist has no rational explanation for that. There is no natural cause and effect analogy that makes any sense of something coming from nothing because we've never observed that, and we've certainly never been able to repeat that happening. You see, 
This idea of something coming from nothing doesn't happen in a closed system. Now, what Mark says here in in Mark chapter 9 is the same message of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. It's the same message of God meeting Moses there in Exodus. It's the same message on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, we do not live in a closed system. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That breaks the closed system. That's how the whole thing got started. Someone outside the system started it. Someone outside the system sustains it. God didn't just start it up and leave it alone. In fact, God keeps tampering with it precisely because it's broken. Sin has entered the picture. It's badly broken. And so God is fixing it. Constantly tampering, tweaking, moving history in a certain direction. And again, the point is this. Our world is not a closed system. It never was. It still isn't. There has always been a powerful, all-knowing, all-good, all-caring God making and tampering with the system. This God just keeps showing up. He keeps advancing his purposes. When Jesus came, that, of course, was a huge event. Emmanuel, God with us. The supernatural was invading the natural. The natural was now living within the so-called closed system. It made a mess of everything, really. And Mark is saying here in chapter 9, it's happening again. God is up to something. It's the seventh day. Jesus is transfigured. A cloud appears. The Father identifies the Son. This is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. It's entirely supernatural. It's invasive. And so again, really, anything is possible, anything God wants to do, because God is with us. That's the Christian world and life view. Uh, Here, Peter, James, and John are having this mountaintop experience, one of those moments when you suddenly find yourself able to believe with incredible clarity. Have you had some of those moments? You're able to believe with incredible clarity. You see it. You get it. You're experiencing it. And uh, this can happen to us in all kinds of different ways. Uh, You can hear an inspirational talk. Not this morning, but you can hear an inspirational talk. You can watch the birth of a child and just go, wow, look at what God does. This is amazing. Or you can get an answer to prayer that just blows you away. It's so clear to you that God was listening and that God intervened. Or sometimes it's just beauty that pierces your heart. Or it's a note or a lyric in a song or it's a passage in the book, this book we call the Bible. That's really how I became a Christian. I was told by somebody, go read the Gospel of John. A lot of you probably had somebody tell you that, and I did. Uh, My life was kind of a little bit of a mess at that time, and I was reading the Gospel of John in my bedroom, uh, sitting in my bed, and I I just, I had an experience. I I floated off the bed, and I, (laughs) that's a lie. I I didn't float off the bed. Uh, But I was reading the Gospel of John, and I had the overwhelming certainty of the presence of God for the first time in my life. I was like, wow, this is true. Jesus is God. He is God's son. I am loved. And it, it, it just floored me. And it was undeniable. Nobody could have said, no, that didn't happen. No, it did too happen. So you see, it, it really happened. Um, you know, you, 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 want to say, you want to stay on those mountaintop kind of experiences. It's easy to believe there. I mean, God is close and God is present and God is real and, and God is undeniable. Happiness and joy at those moments are almost palpable. You can just about taste it. 
And so here's kind of the big question we come to. How come God doesn't always make it easy for us to believe like that? Why doesn't he make us happy all the time and, and make us aware that you know, he's the result of our happiness? Or why doesn't he just keep us on the mountaintop? And the answer to that question, honestly, is I don't know. Uh, maybe it's because as important as happiness is, there are other things that are more important than happiness. Like becoming good or like having the, the character of Jesus formed in me. So that happiness doesn't become the wrong kind of God in my life. Or maybe there's a danger that if I spend too much time on the mountain, I will come to worship the mountain, the feeling of the mountain, the feeling of being up there instead of really worshiping God. I'm not sure. What I do know is this, is that Jesus, God, always, they say they do the same thing. They always say it's time to leave the mountain. We're going down. And in essence, that's what he says to to Peter and to James and John here in Mark 9. In fact, uh, on their way down, he's, he's explaining some things to them. And one of the things he says to them in Mark 9, 12, he says, the son of man must suffer much and be rejected. Woo! Okay, that's a bummer. After the experience they've just had up on the mountain? Are you kidding? In light of what they've just heard, in light of what they've just seen, they wanted to camp up there, right? Build some tabernacles, give everybody a little tent, just stay up there. Now Jesus is telling them the son of man must suffer and be rejected. Get ready for this, he's saying. Jesus says, look, you're going to have to walk through this with me. You're going to experience confusion and doubt as well. You're going to have to ask questions. You're going to have to struggle. There is going to be a crucifixion before there's going to be a resurrection. One day, you'll have the certainty and the joy of seeing the Father face to face. That day will come, he promised. But he's really saying to them, not yet, not today. Today, you've got to trust me. We are going down the mountain." And that's what they did. And when they get down there, uh, things aren't going too well. <laughs> there's a father, and we, this is the passage we read last week. There's a father who is very desperate for help. His son is tormented by a demon. Uh, and he's, his son uh, is suffering convulsions and loss of control and self-destructive behavior. And the father has been looking for Jesus. Apparently, some of the disciples have told the father that Jesus is up on the mountain. And so he asked them, well, can you help me? And so the disciples try. I mean, they have, they're imitating Jesus. They have watched Jesus pray. They have seen him heal. Uh, They have seen him cast out demons. And so they endeavor to imitate what they've seen Jesus do, but it doesn't take, it doesn't stick. It doesn't work. And the crowd is watching this. There's a big crowd forming around them. Some of them are religious leaders in that crowd who don't believe in Jesus. They certainly don't follow him. They're certainly not committed to him in any way, shape, or form. And they watch the disciples fail. And you'll be able to relate to this because I can. They probably enjoyed that. You ever enjoyed watching one of your competitors or enemies fail? You know, shame on us, but we did, we, you know, there's something broken in us. And I'll bet they enjoyed this. Oh, maybe this Jesus stuff isn't everything it's cracked up to be. You know, and I'm sure the disciples are embarrassed with this public failure. They, they, they would have to be. And they get into an argument with the religious leaders. And I'm sure this was all very interesting for the crowd to observe and to watch what was going on. And it's at that moment that Jesus walks up and he surveys the scene and he says, what are you arguing with them about? And the father steps in at this point, the father of this boy, and the father says, my son is in torment, and I I brought him hoping that you could help, but you were gone, so I asked your disciples to help, and I must have gotten some of the disciples on the B team, and uh, they're not able really to do anything that's helpful. 
And I'm guessing the disciples are mortified. It's not a shining moment for them. They, they lack spiritual power. They're not able to help this boy. Um, all they can really do is argue and fight with the religious leaders there and teachers. Kind of an aside here. Sometimes the biggest obstacle to faith in Jesus is the incompetence and the complacency and the arrogance of his followers. Uh, followers, you know, making mistakes. Followers like me or followers like you. Sometimes we can become an obstacle. It's not that we mean to, but we, we can be. It's just the truth. Jesus says this. He says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? And I think he's mostly talking about the disciples there, you know, his own disciples that have been with him for some time. And, and now they're imitating him, but it's not going too well. And, and so I think he's mostly speaking about his disciples there. He says to the dad, bring the boy to me. And the father does, and the boy goes into these violent convulsions. He's rolling around on the ground. He's foaming at the mouth. Everybody is very quiet now, I imagine. And Jesus asked the question, how long has he been like this? And the dad says, a long time. From childhood. And there have been a lot of times where he's nearly died. And the dad says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And what's the word there that indicates that the father's belief is not that strong? I mean, it's obvious. It's the word if. Jesus, this is my boy. I pray to God for him all the time, every day. I have been doing that for years. I've told God I would do anything, absolutely anything. I'll give you anything. I'll promise you anything. But nothing ever happens. Every time a new rabbi comes into town, every time there's a new teacher, every time there's a holy man with a special reputation for healing or spiritual power, I bring my son to him. And I ask, can you do anything? But nothing ever works. And then I heard about you. And I got my hopes up again, and I brought my boy to your disciples, and it hasn't worked again. And it's turning into kind of a freak show here with this crowd. Everybody's looking at him. Everybody's arguing. But if you could do something. And Jesus picks up on that word if. He actually comments on it. And as we read uh, this, there's an amazing statement that gives us hope in one breath. But in the same breath, it also kind of slays us. Jesus says, everything is possible for him who believes. How good is that? I mean, there is power in faith in interacting with the spiritual reality of God's kingdom. And Jesus believes this. Our world is not a closed system of cause and effect. It's wide open to the working of God. And at this point, if I would have been there, I would have probably been tempted to pretend uh, that I had some kind of confidence, some kind of certainty. Yes, Jesus, preach it. I believe. I know. I'm with you. I'm counting on you. But this father doesn't do any of that. I'm, again, just guessing, but maybe he's just too darn exhausted to do that. Too exhausted to pretend. And what he says is, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. In other words, I, I believe and I doubt Jesus. I hope and I fear. I, I pray and I waver. I ask and I worry, Jesus. I believe, but help my unbelief. 
And I got to tell you, I am so thankful for that father's prayer. I get that prayer. I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe belief comes easily for you, but um, there are times when for me it, it doesn't come easily. You know, when it comes to commitment, that's, that's interesting. That, that's it. I do seek to be as committed to God as, as I can be because, frankly, I don't see anywhere else to turn. I really don't. The only alternatives, honestly, that I see to Jesus, that they lead to places of meaninglessness and despair. They lead to a place where, where we live in a closed system, cut off from God or the supernatural or any, any possibility of those kinds of things. So I know of no other hope worth committing my life to other than Jesus. But if I'm being honest, I, I have to admit that there are times when I come to Jesus with not enough faith, faith that's not strong enough. And so I get, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. And of course, this is not exactly a, a ringing endorsement of Jesus, you know. And so you wonder at this moment, you, you, you ask yourself, how's Jesus going to respond to this? I am shocked and appalled that you twit. Thank God he doesn't do that. I mean, thank God Jesus doesn't walk away. Well, you lack faith, you know. Shame on you. The text says what he does is he rebukes the evil spirit. That's what he does. He doesn't even upbraid, you know, the father. You know, I don't know where you are on the demon thing, but uh, maybe you have doubts about that. I'll just say this at this point, that the writers of Scripture teach, and Jesus also very clearly believed that we live in a spiritual universe. It's not a closed system. It's open. There are things happening that we don't necessarily observe on a repeatable basis, spiritual things happening. And uh, Jesus taught that there are spiritual forces. Some of those forces are good and some of those forces are evil. And in this case, there are dark spiritual forces at work in the life of this young man. And Jesus, being who he is, takes charge and the boy is healed. He casts out this demon. And uh, so now the boy's going to live and uh, he's going to grow up. Probably work alongside his dad. That's what boys did. He'll probably make friends. He'll probably learn the Torah just like other Jewish boys. And uh, he may well get married someday, may have children. He may perhaps grow to be an old man. And I'll tell you what, uh, when he is an old man, I, I, I just know this, he would remember. He would remember the day when he was a boy and he met Jesus, a rabbi who did for him what nobody else could do. He'll remember. That's what we do here today. That's what this is all about. It's about remembering. We remember what Jesus has done for us. That's what communion is about. And we're going to come to that here in just a second. But before we do, let me ask you a question. You know, how about you on this thing of belief and commitment? You know, to be a Christ follower, it's both. It's believing, it's knowing, it's, it's believing that certain things are true, but it's also committing to those things. You do understand, of course, that, you know, James, uh, James and James 2 said this about the demons. He says, you believe that there is one God, he was writing, you, you all believe there's one God, great, that's, that's just awesome, good, he says. But even the demons believe that and shudder. See, that's belief without commitment. Discipleship belief is belief with commitment. And as I said, sometimes we make commitments without 100% certainty. There are often times when our faith is less than 100% certain. 
But you need belief and commitment. Um, you know, some of you here, you have experienced God at work in your life. You've had a mountaintop experience or two. God answering prayer, speaking to you, drawing you to himself. You believe, you know he's true. But I would just, you know, ask all of you to kind of examine your spirit, examine your heart, examine your faith. What is the commitment level in your life? Commitment's something we do a lot. I mean, we, we kind of re-up commitment all the time. Any, any of you here ever been married, you, you know you're always re-upping commitment, right? That's what we do in the relationship with Jesus. It's not that I, oh, today I believe he rose from the dead. I didn't even believe that yesterday. No, and I did believe that yesterday. But, you know, am I going to live committed to that so that it changes me is a, kind of a different question. Some of you have gone to church maybe your whole life long, and, and you maybe have a set of beliefs, and we've been singing about some of the beliefs that we have. These are things that we believe to be true about God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and so on and so forth. Where is your commitment level? Is it in concert with those beliefs? Have you set the course of your life to follow him? That's what commitment is about. That's what the leap of faith is about. And you may have some doubts about doing that. I assure you, your doubts are no greater than the doubts that this father had in the text we just read. And I would say to you, you need to believe. That means you need to believe certain things about Jesus, but you also need to commit to those beliefs. You need to believe that Jesus is real, that he's true, that he came, that he lived, that he died, that he rose from the dead. Yeah, you need to believe that. But you also need to commit yourself to him. And here's the messy, ugly part. Commitment means trusting him when your life circumstances don't make a whole lot of sense. Commitment means trusting him with your finances and what you do with him. Commitment means forgiving people who have maybe wronged you and hurt you, but Jesus wants you to forgive them. Commitment means, you know, I would say reaching up, reaching in, or reaching out. They're not like options. Not, not if you really want, want to follow him. And maybe you're here wondering, you know, well, okay, if I commit, if I, if I take that leap you're talking about, will he catch me? Well, he caught me. I know a lot of you would say the same thing. He catches you day after day after day as you commit. Here's the deal. You know, you can believe certain things about God. And I'm, t I'm challenging you to commit to those beliefs in such a way that it changes what you do, how you live how you interact with people. And if you never do that, then even though you have a set of beliefs, you'll, you, you'll, you'll never know the hope that Jesus can give. You'll never truly, deeply experience the love that he offers. You will live and grow old and die without knowing the grace and the power of Jesus in your life. Now, next week, we're going to talk about skepticism. That'll be Thomas. We're going to talk about cynicism. That'll be Pilate. And we're going to talk about unbelief, hardened hearts. That'll, that'll be the Pharisees. And I would just challenge you this morning. Don't, you know, the good news about, about Thomas is God was able to work in the life of a skeptic. Thomas wasn't always a skeptic. The bad thing about cynicism is you find it and make excuses for why you don't believe. And when your heart is hardened like some of the Pharisees' hearts were, well, you just live in that hardened place because to, to actually commit and to follow Jesus would, would mean making changes in your life. You're just not, not going to make, not going to do it, you see. We'll talk about that next week. But my challenge to you this morning as we come to this table 
is where are you on your commitment? Some of you here maybe just need to make that commitment for the first time and say, Jesus, I'm going to put my faith in you. I do believe you're real. I do believe you came and lived and died and rose uh, from the grave. And Lord, what's been lacking is my commitment to you. And you need to make that commitment this morning as you come to this table. You really do. In fact, I would encourage you to pray a prayer. Would you, would you just kind of bow your heads with me? If you need to, I think we have this, we do. You can open your eyes if you need to and look at this prayer on the screen and, and make all or part of this prayer yours personally. Make a commitment. God, today I want to humble myself. You cannot come to Jesus unless you're willing to humble yourself because one of the things you learn in coming to Jesus is you are not God. He is. And I confess my own sin and doubt. Lord, I've been trying to live my life without you, and that hasn't worked very well. I need you, Jesus. I ask today for your forgiveness and your grace, and I thank you for dying for me on the cross. And I commit my life from this day forward to following you, and that's a commitment you'll be making daily. Jesus, I... I will need your help. I believe, help my unbelief. I commit to making you my leader, my forgiver, my teacher, my friend, and my Lord. Amen.